there, Ephesians chapter 4. And just have a look at this um, section of Paul's letters. As uh, we know, um, Paul and others uh, spent a lot of time walking. Generally, if they had to go anywhere, uh, that's how they traveled. They had to walk from different places, between different places. And I suppose the one thing you can say about walking is it lets you think about walking. And as we can see in this letter in Ephesians, Paul is referring to walking quite often. For example, in verse 1 of chapter 4, he tells them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And here in uh, verse 17, he says, don't walk the way as Gentiles do. And then again in verse 2 of chapter 5, he says, walk in love, and so on. And also again down at verse um, uh, 15, look carefully then how you walk. Now, of course, we can see how all these um, references to walking um, just apply to everyday life, don't they? Um, even where he says, don't no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Well, he's bound to have seen different kinds of people walking along the road, isn't he? And some would be perhaps skipping along, and others would be trudging along. And he recognizes that there's different ways to walk. And it wouldn't be too difficult to imagine him saying to one of his friends, well, that just illustrates the Christian life. And there's one way to walk as a Christian, and there's lots of ways <clears throat> to walk as non-Christians. So here Paul is concerned with not walking the way Gentiles walk. The obvious thing about going for a walk is that you can see what others are doing. And therefore, we can see what Gentiles do. I mean, there's lots of opposites in the world, isn't there? I mean, there's rich and poor. There's intelligent and not so intelligent. But the, I suppose the starkest opposite, if we want to use that word, is a believer and an unbeliever. Totally different. There's um, a variety of, we want to put it this way, there's a variety of ways in which the Gentiles walk. But all of them are different from the Christian walk. And we may find that hard initially to grasp. But hopefully, as we make our way through this, um, we'll um, see that. A believer and an unbeliever. What's different about their walk? Even at a basic level. Well, the believer is alive. Spiritually alive. Everybody else is not. There's nobody in the world who's half alive. Anymore than there's anybody in the world who's half dead. 
You're either alive or not. So when we contrast the walk of a Christian in an ideal sense with the walk of Gentiles or anybody else, the walk of a Christian indicates he or she's alive, spiritually alive. Every step that they take, every day of the week, every hour of the day, steps taken by those who are alive. And they do it beside others who are walking in a totally different way. As Paul goes on to make clear. Now, um, we might think that, well, Paul lived in a very uncivilized day. Society marked by all kinds of sinful practices. Where there was lots of um, injustices and acts of cruelty and so on. Where he lived in the Roman Empire where life was cheap and all that kind of thing. And we might think, well, we live in a very different world. And from one angle, we do. But the contrast is still there. There are alive or we're dead. And um, we all know how we become alive, don't we? From a human point of view, we believe in Jesus. We trust in him. And when we do that, the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. We're made alive, new hearts, new minds, right from the word go. The minute we become Christians, we're made alive. Of course, from a divine point of view, that all happens because we've been regenerated. But the only proof we have that we are regenerated is that we believe in Jesus. And so therefore that's how we start this walk. It starts with faith and continues by faith because the just shall live by faith. And the faith that they have makes them walk differently every day of life. So as we look at this passage, I just want to look at, I'm going to call it living differently, but I just want to look at what Paul says here. And in verses 17 to 19, he talks about the spiritual darkness of the Gentiles. And then in verses 20 to 24, he points about the striking difference between Christians and those who are still not Christians. And then in verses 25 to 29, he gives four sample details of where a difference is seen in how they live. The, the question of lying, of anger, of stealing, and of talking. And he just kind of picks that four. I suppose he chose them because they were difficulties that they would have encountered as they walked differently from the Gentiles. But, but that's not limited to the first century. I think these things are around today, aren't they? Lying and anger and stealing and talk. And Paul says, these are just some sample details for you to think about. And after that, he points out a special danger in verse 30, grieving the Holy Spirit. And after that, 
what I can call a sanctified distinction in verses 31 and 32. So there's spiritual darkness. And as we look at what Paul there, says there in verses 17 to 19, we can see that he uh, indicates where the darkness exists. And the darkness exists in their understanding, in their minds. What, just what goes through their head. I mean, uh, sometimes the first thing we say to somebody is, what's your plans for today? Well, where are these plans going to come from? Well, they either come from what you call a regenerated mind, or they come from an unregenerated mind. People may have, may be doing the same outward action, but their reasons for doing it are very different. Um, it might be the same activity, but a Christian does it because he's alive. And a non-Christian does it, says Paul, because they're spiritually dead. Whatever happens, whatever they're doing, it comes out of the darkness of their understanding. It's not just their, what we could call outrageous sins that comes out of the darkness of their understanding. It's everything. If it's not done for the glory of God, what's it done for? And it's quite a stark difference, isn't it? I mean, Paul does say, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it for the glory of God. And if it's not done for the glory of God, it's done in the darkness. And that just highlights the radical difference there is between a Christian and others. And it's not because the Christian has decided to elevate himself. It's because something has happened inside them. God has given them life. And this life affects the way they think. And therefore, they just do things for different reasons. I mean, the Gentiles that Paul was, was living, a lot of them were very intelligent. I mean, many of, for example, all the philosophers that he met on, on Mars Hill in Athens, well, they knew a lot, didn't they? But the one thing they didn't know was the true God. And we can see here that Paul in verse um, 18 basically says about everybody, and that's what out for our walks, just remind ourselves of this. As he sees everybody, he says they are marked by ignorance. They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. That's quite stark, isn't it? And because they are missing that um, input into their thinking, Paul says, now, the inevitable consequence is hardness of heart. Hardness of heart towards God. Hardness of heart towards the gospel. I mean, they might show great compassion. And God's, God's common grace is affects people in all kinds of ways. But inside, 
Well, Paul paints a very dark picture, doesn't he? They are darkened in their understanding. They are ignorant of the life of God. Their hearts are hard. And therefore, they become callous. And they give themselves over to sensuality and a rather horrifying way of saying, but true, they are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That's spiritual darkness. And obviously, as we read these words by Paul, we have to ask ourselves, what effect does that have on us? It's a serious question. We know the way to light. We know the information they need. What do we think about the others we see walking along the road? About their inner lives? Surely we should be praying for them. Because the person you saw last week, they haven't remained static. This hardening process just keeps on happening. So the spiritual darkness is very real and very sad and very dangerous. But then he points out there's a striking difference. And of course the difference is brought about by, as he says there in verse um, 20, they learned Christ. And it is an interesting way that Paul phrases that. He doesn't say they learned about Christ. I mean, it is possible to learn about Christ and stay in darkness. I mean, there's lots of people out there who can tell you quite a lot about Jesus. They could be very accurate in all their theological statements. But when we encounter them as they walk, as we are out on our walk, we are meeting people who have only learned about Christ. They haven't learned Christ. And that is a big difference. They have been taught the truth as it is in Jesus. So the difference is, if I am reading it correctly, the difference is, that they become Christ-like. They have contact with Christ, and even more than that, Christ is in them. And therefore, they learn Christ. And I don't know about you, but I know it's true for me, it's a lot easier to learn about Christ than to learn Christ. But at the end of the day, it's not learning about Christ that matters. It's learning Christ. Becoming like him. What effect does learning Christ have well, Paul says it's like a change of clothes. An entirely new wardrobe. 
He says that if we have learned Christ, we put off our old self. And he's using the illustration of taking clothes off. And having taken off the old self, which he says is your former manner of life, which is corrupt through deceitful desires, because our minds have been made new, we put on a new outfit, the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You know, if you and I saw someone walking down the street with a, an old tatty jacket on and a new pair of trousers, we would say, well, there's something wrong with that person, isn't there? And if, if he was pleased with his combined outfit, we would just say about him, he doesn't know how to dress. So we have to, in order for this difference to take place, we have to um, put off the old and put on the new. I was thinking of a, a minor. I mean the minor in the sense of someone who goes down a coal mine. And um, he comes home and before he goes in he has to almost become a different person, doesn't he? He's got to put off his dirty working clothes and put on a tire suitable for living in the house. He's the same person, but he looks very different. And we could say, just taking Paul's illustration, that a person without Jesus will always see as sin, isn't it? Sin affects everything. They're not giving God the glory. But when a person changes their clothes, what kind of new clothes do we see? And Paul tells us there what the new self is like. It's marked by true righteousness and holiness. Some people wonder why he says righteousness and holiness. And they come up with all kinds of suggestions as to that. Some say, well, righteousness is how you behave towards others. And holiness is how you behave towards God. And that, of course, may be right. But it could also just be that Paul is, um, as a word, doubling the difference. And he says your new life should be marked by righteousness and holiness. Right living, as it were, and holy living. And that's a very different way of life, isn't it? And as we look at that verse there, in verse 24, is that us? true righteousness and holiness. Because that's what Jesus is like, isn't it? Everything about Jesus is marked by righteousness and holiness. Inwardly and outwardly. Of course, we have to remember that um, this does not mean a believer is perfect. Sadly, in this life, he's not yet, he or she is not yet perfect. And occasionally, something of the old way will show itself. And when that happens, we've got to say to ourselves, that's very odd. Because 
The person that used to live like that has died. But there he is. But sadly, we do have sin within us. And we have to watch for that all the time. Because the others walking around us, when they see that, they'll just say, oh, he's just like us. But we have to remember that there's still sin within us. We've also got to remember, and I'm sure we all know this, that righteousness and holiness is not something that's stuck on on the outside. Righteousness and holiness is something that flows from within. It comes out of the heart. Anything that we just stick on, well, the word for that is hypocrisy, but we are to have something coming from our hearts because we have new hearts. And therefore we are called to be strikingly different. And well, this is like a mirror, isn't it? The Bible says the word is a mirror. And as we look at the mirror, well, we see the truth, don't we? I mean, for example, I can go up towards the mirror with a hairbrush in my hand and imagine that this has got a lot of work to do. But as I get towards the mirror, the truth hits, doesn't it? And the same goes with God's word. We may imagine that oh, we're not doing too bad. And then we go up to the mirror and we're actually shown something. So as we look at the mirror of this passage in Ephesians chapter 4, if we're Christians, as we look in the mirror, we're meant to see in our new attire the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And then Paul gives us four examples. It's always good to have examples. And as I mentioned earlier, the four examples are falsehoods, anger, stealing, and talking. And we may be a bit surprised that these things are mentioned, but Paul must have um, been aware that they're around. The thing about each of them, as far as I can see, is that they are deliberate choices. Why do people tell lies? Why do people get angry? Why do people steal? Why do people talk wrong things? Well, they're all just deliberate choices, aren't they? And with regard to each one of them, Paul has a comment. He comments on lying, and he comments on anger, and he comments on stealing, and he comments on talking. And he also points out, as he speaks for each of them, that all of them have to be replaced. That is not appropriate. It doesn't fit in with the new outfit to have these four features present. I don't know if you want to say that uh, it's just imagination, but we could say that the falsehood is like your tie. And if the tie doesn't fit with the outfit, it stands out, doesn't it? Or the anger is like your handkerchief. Or so on. But it's all got to fit with the outfit that we are putting on. So what does we say about them? 
man called Samuel Johnston apparently said, it is more from carelessness about truth than from intentional lying that there is so much falsehood in the world. He's not talking about Christians, he's just talking about society in general. It is more from carelessness about truth than from intentional lying that is so much falsehood in the world. We all know about Chinese whispers, don't we? Just got a line of people. <clears throat> whisper, the first one whispers something to the second person. And by the time it gets to number 10, there's no connection between the two statements. Truth is something that's very precious. A wrong statement about somebody can destroy them. And Paul says here, <clears throat> the reason why we have to be truthful is because we are members of one another. Imagine if... Um, my mind said to my hand, it's good to touch a snake. What would that be like? If my mind, part of my body, said to another part of my body, it's good to touch a snake. It would cause real trouble, wouldn't it? And lies, says Paul, well, it just shouldn't happen. Just things like, like gossip. If it's not true, it's a lie. And therefore, Paul says, as part of your new outfit, Don't tell falsehood. Exaggeration. Or minimalizing. They're false. Don't do it, says Paul. And I'm sure we can all think of many examples. But it's not good for the body. Remember, you're out for a walk. And the church is walking together. <coughs> Truthfulness. And then the second one is anger. <clears throat> and I don't think Paul is talking about uh, serious things here. There are serious things to be angry about. But he's talking about a kind of thing, well, it's not worth being angry about it tomorrow. Which is, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. And of course, in the Mediterranean world, the sun goes down quite early. Anger. We like to talk about righteous anger and things like that. But I read something that Aristotle said. I'm not in the habit of reading Aristotle, but I read this in a book that he said about anger. Anyone can become angry, that is easy. But to be angry with the right person and to the right degree, and at the right time, and for the right purpose, and in the right way. That is not within everybody's power, and it is not easy. I mean, I think it's kind of worth reading that again. Anybody can become angry, that is easy. But to be angry with the right person and to the right degree, 
and at the right time and for the right purpose and in the right way. That is not within everybody's power and it is not easy. And Paul says, doesn't he, if you're angry, make sure it's right. You know, some people can play it up. And other people just kind of simmers. But we'll see in a minute why that is dangerous. But what does anger destroy? Unity. That's what Paul mentions, isn't it? Give no opportunity to the devil just to come in and do his worst. I mean, there were many things when Jesus could have been angry. But he wasn't. There were times when he was angry, we know that. But there are lots of things he put up with. And since he put up with them, that means Christ-likeness puts up with them. So anyway, anger. And then there's the third one, third example. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. I mean, stealing. Well, when I think of stealing, I think of somebody robbing a bank. And if... If that is the category or the level of stealing, then I don't know any thieves. I don't think Paul is talking about people that rob banks. I think he's just talking about people that steal anything. And he says to these people, don't do it. I mean, what is stealing? Well, it's just taking what's not yours. So therefore, it could be something very small as well as something very big. But instead of taking, Paul says, they are to be giving. It's the exact opposite, isn't it? They replace the tendency to take with the tendency to give. He has to work, says, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Instead of taking, he's giving. Because that suits his new outfit. And then there's the last one, talking. One of the great privileges of being human, for most humans, sadly there are some who can't talk, but for most humans they have this amazing ability of speech. But speech always has effects. As we know, every word has got its ripples. And we don't know how many ripples each word has. And when we speak, and Paul is talking about them speaking to each other here, he is saying to them, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Well, the the word corrupting talks about the effects. And therefore we'd have to say to ourselves, wouldn't we, what will be the effect if I say this? I mean, it might be true. But what will be the effect? 
And he says that to them, to those who are alive, with their new outfit on, he says to them that every word can be a means of grace. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? Every word can give grace to somebody else. And of course, that raises the question, how does God send us grace? I mean, I mean how, what are the channels he uses to send his grace? Well, no doubt he's got channels that we cannot see. And he's definitely got channels that we can hear. And we're all meant to be channels. So that everything we say, the person that hears it should be a better person as a result. Because they'll be edified. That means built up. They'll be developing. They'll be helping them in their new attire as well. Christ-like. It has to be suitable to the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. There's a time to speak. There's a time to be silent. But there's there's never the time to speak what is not helpful. And Paul says, those with the new outfit on, as they walk around, their words are beneficial. Not just kind, but gracious. Transforming, life-changing. I know we don't always live up to this, but Paul says, this is a normal Christian life. Then he points out a special danger. You know, you and I can meet with somebody and we don't know if they're telling a falsehood. And we can meet with somebody and we don't know if their anger's been there for a while. And we can meet with somebody and we don't know if they've been taking what's not theirs. And we can meet with somebody and we don't know what they've been speaking about. But there is someone who does know. Someone who's been there every single time that has happened. Who has heard, just taking the things that have been mentioned, who has heard every falsehood. Who has been there when the anger was simmering. Who has been there when perhaps they were taking what was not theirs. Who's had to listen to the inappropriate talk. And who's that? Oh, it's the Holy Spirit. He's there. And he's not stoical when he's there. Grieve. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Grieving. Well, I think sometimes we are um, liable to link the word grieving with sadness. And no doubt the Holy Spirit is saddened by when these things happen in the ones he indwells. But the Old Testament references to grieving 
go far beyond being sad. And Paul will be aware of these Old Testament references when he wrote these words, Isaiah 63.10, But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Going by that verse from Isaiah, grieving the Holy Spirit is a very dangerous thing. It's not just a minor blip that happens. And any time we are guilty of these four examples or any other sin, he's there. And he's never indifferent. And therefore we don't grieve him, do we? Church in Laodicea, well, they were grieving him left, right, and center. And what did Jesus say to them? As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. It's serious. Grieve not the Holy Spirit. Calvin said, Endeavor that the Holy Spirit may dwell cheerfully with you, as in a pleasant and joyful dwelling, and give him no occasion for grief. It's very sad to live in, in somewhere where there's tension. Well, what's it like to live if there's tension between a person and the Holy Spirit? And especially, how long is he going to be there? Well, he's going to be there until the day of redemption. And if we want to put it this way, as he walks with us, he doesn't want to have to put up with this every day. So all these things, well, Paul goes on, we'll come to the end now, but Paul goes on and he just says, keeping the clothing uh, picture, he says there in verse 27 about this sanctified distinction, as I've called it, let it be put away from you. All these things, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander, and malice. He says, put them in the bin. That's where we put old clothes that are not suitable anymore. Put them away. Don't put them in a cupboard where in 10 years' time you'll find them. But put them away. And they'll not be seen again. Put them in the bin. Instead, as he closes there in verse 32, he says that those who wear the right clothes, they're kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So, it's a wonderful picture, isn't it? Of those who are different. They're kind. Paul's not saying, well, in such and such a situation you may be kind, in another situation you may be tender-hearted, and in another situation you may forgive. 
He's saying in every situation, be kind, be tender-hearted, be forgiving. And that's Christ-likeness. As God in Christ forgave you, he says. I suppose when it comes down to it, the reality is from Paul's words, there's a beautiful way of walking and there's an ugly way of walking. As I said at the beginning, life is full of opposites. But sadly within our hearts, there's the root of sin and it may come out. It's bad enough when other Christians see it. But it's always bad when the Holy Spirit sees it. And he just sees it whenever it happens. And he is grieved. And therefore, I suppose people have their own ways of coping with how they dress. But when it comes to the, the Christian life, we've always got to look our best. Everywhere and all the time. So we should pray that we'll be heeding Paul's exhortation and we wouldn't walk as the Gentiles walk. Shall we pray? Lord, we <clears throat> give you thanks for how a simple illustration can point to some significant requirements, some beautiful changes, the wonder of holiness and the beauty of righteousness. Lord, help us all to be like Jesus. We know how he walked and we are to follow in his steps. So help us to be like him. The man who never had to change his clothes in a spiritual sense but offers to us the best outfits to wear. So help us, Lord, we pray, for your own name's sake. Amen.